Well, good evening. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 15 in just a few moments. And while you're turning over there, uh, allow me to express my, my thanks and my gratitude as I have come to do uh, now, this being my fourth opportunity uh, here at this congregation to stand before you and, and preach and to look at God's Word with you. And it's uh, truly an honor and a privilege and a blessing each and every time uh, to do that and, and such a, a great support uh, network around uh, all the young men who, who aspire to, to stand up here. I'm certainly thankful to the elders, to Roger and Jason, uh, and to so many of you individually who have taken the time uh, to reach out and encourage. Uh, it means truly more to me and more to uh, others, I'm sure, uh, than you recognize. And so thank you for doing that. I uh, also want to thank you as well on behalf of my family for a moment as we prepare to welcome our, our third child. Uh, we are, are just truly blessed to feel part of this congregation. And so uh, it's uh, for many reasons that I'm thankful. Uh, it is actually ironic, uh, and I'm worried about the next time I'll be asked to preach because I'm running a, a lucky streak here. The last three times I've been asked to preach was on one, my wife's birthday, uh, to uh, our anniversary, and so when Jason said to preach a week before your baby's born, I thought, well, that just might be the sign uh, that uh, we're expecting our third child tonight, but um, uh, I thank uh, each and every one of you for the opportunity to be up here. It was a 2001 Camaro Z28, 5.7 liter V8, uh, nearly 300 horsepowers, all black leather interior with T-tops. It was by far one of my favorite cars, and it belonged to my father, and we would oftentimes take this vehicle out uh, when I was a child, especially around the time I was a teenager, uh, and we would just drive around in that vehicle. Sometimes it'd be to go and get something to eat, but often it would just be to drive aimlessly uh, on, on back roads and highways, uh, and it was a, a truly a, a fantastic vehicle, one that I enjoyed a, a lot of time uh, with my father in. Uh, and even more so, uh, it caught my eye when I turned 16, um, because I had my eyes set on that vehicle and wanting to drive it myself for a long, long time. And so shortly after I turned 16, uh, I did get that opportunity a couple of times, actually, uh, and one of which I had uh, convinced my father uh, that I was um, responsible enough to drive it to the drive-in movie theater uh, with a couple of my friends and a couple of our, uh, at the time, high school girlfriends. And uh, the night was going fine. It was, uh, uh, I forget the movie that was playing that night, but we left uh, at a reasonable hour and were on the drive back. When uh, a friend of mine who had a vehicle not quite like the, the one that you see above me, but one similar, uh, actually Jeremy and I were comparing because uh, as a Ford family, uh, they know all about the, the Mustangs and Camaros and the histories between uh, these vehicles and others. And um, we were driving back on a, a long two-lane highway, and a friend of mine and I were uh, kind of getting, uh, driving these cars uh, faster than we should. Uh, let's just say that. And uh, uh, we were starting to, to kind of go side by side with each other for a while, and another stoplight would come, and we'd, we'd stop and start over again. Uh, and after this happened two or three times, uh, we were on that highway, and uh, we were starting to approach speeds that, that I knew were um, beyond uh, what the speed limit uh, was, and I knew it was beyond uh, responsible. Uh, in fact, I, I remember somewhere in the uh, 80 miles an hour on a 60-mile-an-hour road, 
Um, and so at that point, I started to, to dial back, and I started to let off the gas and ease on the brake, and my friend who was driving in the vehicle next to me started to continue driving faster. Uh, I don't know what speed he got up to, but it was certainly faster than mine, and he proceeded to pass me and, and drive on. And it was right around that time that he was passing me that I saw the uh, gut-wrenching lights of an Indiana State police officer pull up behind me uh, and pulled me over to the side of the road. And uh, if you've ever been pulled over by a police officer, and some of us have, you know what that feeling might, might be like. Guilt and shame and sorrow and lots of things that we hope uh, that people would feel in that moment, showing signs of, of uh, repentance and wanting to uh, not make the same mistake again. But as a 16-year-old, I was still struggling with some of those concepts, and I was still struggling with the right words to say in the right moments. And so when the police officer uh, pulled up or walked up to, to my window, and uh, he rolled down, or I rolled down the window, and he asked me, he said, uh, do you know how fast you were going? And I made the mistake of saying, not as fast as the guy to the left of me. Um, and he didn't necessarily like that answer very much. And uh, he said, uh, well, I pulled you over, not him. And I made an even greater mistake, which I'll unpack with you momentarily uh, near the conclusion of my sermon, what happened after these words. But I made a greater mistake by saying, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And as a much older person now, I can tell you it was extremely fair that I got pulled over and I deserved the consequences uh, of that encounter uh, because of my breaking of the law. It was uh, um, a significant oversight on my part, and uh, I deserved any consequences uh, that uh, he deemed fit as an Indiana State police officer. But my words, that's not fair, started conversations in my mind about how we evaluate fairness uh, many, many years ago. And, and then shortly after that, I enrolled in college, started taking uh, ethics classes, and different types of conversation would happen around how we define fairness. And so I want to share with you, uh, and, and rest assured, I will finish what that police officer said to me uh, at the end of this time together. Um, but I do want to share with you a few thoughts on fairness tonight. I want to start with looking at some assumptions that we have about fairness here in this world, uh, in the interactions that we have day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our communities. Um, but then I want to take a look at what the Bible says. Uh, I really want to spend some time tonight looking at a few parables that teach us quite a bit uh, about justice and fairness, and we'll take a look at those together uh, this evening. But one of the things that I think is, is quite obvious uh, for most of us in this room who have been around long enough, we know that human perceptions of fairness are highly subjective, meaning they vary from person to person. What's fair to me might not be fair to somebody else, if that's the only standard we're using, our individual perceptions. Uh, it doesn't take long if you're going to a sporting event, uh, a penalty is called on a, a team, you'll hear some people cheering for that, some people booing that. Why is that? Well, some feel that the penalty is fair. Other people believe that the penalty is not. And so that's what we mean by human perceptions of fairness being subjective. One of the things that I think is most fascinating about how humans, individuals like you and I every day in our workplaces, in our organizations, um, but even on the road as we're driving down the street, how we evaluate fairness, how I did as that 16-year-old, was through comparisons, through relevant terms, through uh, relative terms, I should say, referent points, comp uh, comparisons of previous events that have happened. 
Uh, one of the strongest compelling pieces of evidence in the United States court system uh, is precedent. Uh, this is why the Supreme Court uh, will always review precedent, previous cases, things that have, have happened and haven't happened, things that they've ruled in favor or against, uh, and we compare these to where we are today. Uh, and much like some of you may drive home tonight and Maybe for you, uh, five miles an hour over the speed limit is a fair and reasonable uh, speed to drive home until you see a person driving 15 miles an hour over next to you and you think, well, maybe I could go a little more. They seem to be uh, getting away with it, right? And so these are the thoughts that a lot of us go through when we compare or evaluate fairness in our own minds without Scripture. Lastly, we know and we see oftentimes that fairness and justice— Justice is a word that so many times we hear, and oftentimes not in positive ways. Uh, we hear about um, threats to justice. We hear about um, social justice concerns. We hear about a lot of problems surrounding justice. But most of those problems are tied to perceptions that people feel are not fair. Um, and so fairness and justice, very closely linked, and they're linked through this action uh, and consequence um, correlation. We expect actions to reflect certain consequences or vice versa. And when those don't happen, when somebody gets away with something, uh, we feel that it is unfair and that a lack of justice has been served. So before we go any further, I feel it's helpful, um, just given the, the, the diversity of these terms and how oftentimes they're used in different ways, to take a quick look at what we mean by just and fair. Uh, so what does it mean to have a just and fair society, a just and fair law, uh, justice and fairness are these really, again, kind of complicated ideas when we start to peel back the layers. One of the simplest definitions that I have found about just, or what is just, uh, is that it's based on or behaving to what is morally right and fair. So you already see the, the link that I was referencing uh, between these two concepts and between these two ideas. And so what is morally right and fair reminds us of that first uh, point I just mentioned, which is, well, if we're doing so without God, then we're doing so with a highly subjective point of view. Uh, anything that, that is not based on God's Word is just going to come down to what I think is morally right and what others think are morally right. And that's, that's a really problematic way of looking at justice and fairness in today's world. Uh, and so what is fairness then? If we know that fair is part of being just, uh, I will tell you, if you go on to look up definitions of fair, uh, it might be the longest set of definitions you'll ever find, because I think there was about 14 different ones uh, for this word. But this is the first one, and I think it's probably the one that comes to mind most often, uh, is that fair is in accordance with rules or standards. It's legitimate. Um, and so it also says here, uh, it's appropriate for the circumstances. Uh, and so sometimes you'll hear, going back to the sports analogy, uh, yeah, that's a, a penalty, but not at that time. It shouldn't be in the final two minutes of a game. That's not fair to the athletes. Well, it's a circumstantial idea that sometimes we adjust our expectations based on the time and the place in which we are at. So if those are the concepts, what's tonight's conversation about? What's tonight's focal point about? And I draw your attention to this image above me because I think this is a visual representation of what so oftentimes are the hardest things in this life to deal with. Let me explain. 
This is a scales of justice, and if you're familiar with the scales of justice, the, the simple version is it should be balanced, and that's the idea of fairness and justice, is that whatever happens on one hand creates some kind of outcome that is reflective or equal to the action that was taken. And I'll give you an example. I think we would all agree, most of us at least, maybe not my mother who was very angry that I was speeding as often as I was as a, as a youth, that 30 years in prison uh, was an excessive amount of time for a speeding ticket. Nobody would necessarily raise their hand and say, I think that's a fair amount of, or fair punishment for the actions taken. And yet 30 years may or may not be, for a lot of people in this room, a fair amount of time for a murder that somebody might commit. And so if the outcome is 30 years, what is the action that justifies that outcome? You can see quickly why this, this conversation has the potential to be quite complex. And I'm going to try to keep it simple tonight as we look at God's thoughts on this. Because actions and consequences certainly are found in the Bible, throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the Old Testament and the New. Actions taken by people in the Bible and consequences that happened as a result. And we can learn quite a bit about fairness and justice from what the Bible teaches us in these ways. I'm particularly drawn, and I think what really summarizes where we're going to head tonight is this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I like this quote, and I like this idea because he's highlighting the point that we're always going to struggle with this. As long as man seeks its own laws, creates its own justice systems, creates its own courtrooms, we will always struggle because it will not be the law of God. Certainly, court systems have been influenced by the Bible, ours as well in the United States, but I think we have all will agree that there are times in which our own court systems make verdicts and decisions that we as Christians don't agree with and we don't think align with the Bible. And those disagreements or those divergence are a reflection of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was saying, that this is where a lack of harmony will always be the result. And really what I want to do tonight is take a look at what exactly does the law of God say about justice and fairness, and where can we look to for our ideas and our beliefs and how we should be thinking about moments of unfairness, moments that don't seem just, and how do we respond in those moments. So what I'd like to do tonight is look at three, three with each and every one of you this evening, uh, and there are three parables, uh, and we're going to take a look at all three of them uh, tonight. The prodigal son, but we're going to look at the brother of the prodigal son, the prodigal son so I'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. We're also going to look at the workers in the vineyard, uh, found in Matthew 20. And lastly, we'll look at the unforgiving servant, uh, found in Matthew 18. And so we'll begin tonight, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, in Luke 15. So hopefully you've turned your Bibles there with me, Luke 15. Uh, but as I mentioned, we're not going to actually focus tonight on the prodigal son. We're going to focus on the prodigal son's brother, and I'll explain why here in just a few moments. But if you will turn with me to Luke 15, we're going to pick up in verse 25. And again, for context, I'm pretty sure everyone is familiar with the prodigal son, uh, the account of this at this point. Um, but in verse 25, the prodigal son has just returned. Okay, so you can read right before that, the prodigal son has just made his return. We know of what that process was like, the, the, his time in the foreign land, uh, and his decision to come back, and the humility, and the, the coming back, and, and being prepared to do so as a servant. Um, and yet the father accepts him and begins to host or, or create uh, a celebration in honor of this son's returning. Uh, but what I think is really interesting from the vantage point of fairness and justice 
is the prodigal son's brother and how he reacts in this situation. And so let's read about that, starting in verse 25. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. On in verse 28, he says, But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat, that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. There's a couple of things, and we are going to finish this. Uh, There's a few verses remaining, uh, but I want to pause here for just a second. There's a few things that stand out to me in this particular part uh, of uh, Luke chapter 15, and I'll draw your attention to a few things. Number one, notice his reaction uh, that that is expressed here in verse 28. It says, but he was angry and would not go in. The first time I read that, I had the question, why? Why is he angry? Why would he be angry? So many of us read the prodigal son and we rejoice with the father. Right? We, we, we think how great it would be to have someone who is lost come back to the kingdom and how amazing that, that moment is, how special that moment is. We're going to read about that moment in more detail in these final few verses in just a second. A lot of us, I think, struggle, myself included, in understanding why was the prodigal son's brother upset? And why even include him in this story? Why not stop with, and they threw a great feast? Seems like a bit of an add-on, but I don't think it is. I think it's very intentional that the prodigal son's brother is mentioned here. Because I think what's happening in the prodigal son's mind is that he views this as unfair. He views this in a comparative sense that he, and notice, go back here for just a second, he uses a lot of the word I, but I have been serving you. I have never transgressed. I can make merry with my friends. He begins to take a very self-interested point of view in understanding the brother's journey back to the father. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense other than he views this as a limited supply. The father only has so much love to give, and by welcoming him back, you're giving even more of what should be mine to him. It's the best I can come up with uh, in trying to rationalize or explain why the prodigal son brother may be acting in this way. He sees this as a not balanced outcome of the situation. But I want you to read what the father says, because that might be the modern take of the prodigal son. I don't know that for sure. I haven't polled enough people or asked enough people, but I think you could find a few in this world who would say, yeah, I understand and I agree with the prodigal son's brother. That's not my point of view, but I'm sure those thoughts exist in the world. But I think we need to be very careful and we need to look very closely into the father's response. Uh, And he says here, beginning in verse 31, and he said to him, son... You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And I love this contrast, and I draw your attention specifically to it was right. 
The Father is saying, you're misunderstanding and you are, are misaligning what you view as fair and just because of your own selfish interest. What you need to understand is that the kingdom, in this, which is the analogy that is being given here, it is right for us to want people to come back, regardless of the time in which they do. And so one of the takeaways, the first takeaway tonight that I'm hoping we're seeing in this example, and we'll see in the other two as well, is that God's way of defining fairness far, out, far exceeds and is far superior to human ways of defining fairness. And it does not depend on comparisons. In fact, this morning, Shannon was leading us in the class here in the auditorium, and we read about God uh, not being partial uh, to, to humans. And I think this is a, a very close analogy. It doesn't matter whether it was the prodigal son or the prodigal son's brother. God's love for them was the same. And, and the father's love in that, that scenario was the same. And so bringing a, a son who was lost and now is found back into the house, back into God's kingdom, was worthy of celebration even though the prodigal son's brother at the time seemed to think it was unfair. And I draw your attention to this this application or this takeaway because it resonates in in a variety of ways with Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We're going to be kind of flipping back and forth a couple times to Isaiah, so if you want to benchmark or put a mark there, we'll we'll come back and forth to that. But in Isaiah, we see this thought, uh, in particular the idea that God's way of defining fairness is superior to our own. Injustice is superior to any man-made court system or legal system that we can ever come up with. It says in Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know what you think when you read these words in Isaiah 55, but I'll tell you what I think. I think there's great comfort in these words. I think there's tremendous uh, relief that are in these words. Because when people come to me and says, why does this happen? Or why, you're a Christian, right? Why do you believe that, that God allows this to take place? Sometimes I reference Isaiah 55. I say, you're asking the wrong person. Zach Goldman does not speak for God. Right? Zach is a follower of God. He reads God's Word. He, he will take somebody to, to God's Word and, and do his best to help answer those questions. But Zach is not the spokesperson for God. Uh, and so when people ask questions like that, I, I oftentimes think of Isaiah 55. I can't speak for God. Right? In fact, this verse right here tells us why. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And he doesn't just say, I'm different. Right? He doesn't just say, you're over in right field and I'm in left field. No, no, no. He says, I'm superior. Right? My thoughts are above your own, and, and that has to be clear, uh, not just in Isaiah 55, but really in our thoughts about justice as well. So I want to move, there's a couple other takeaways that we're going to see, but this one you'll see again uh, in the last two uh, parables that we're going to look at today, uh, or tonight. I want to look at the workers in the vineyard. So if you will with me, uh, jump over uh, in your Bibles with me to Matthew 20, Matthew 20, uh, verses 1 through 16. And there's a lot here on your screen right now, so I encourage you, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along there, uh, we do need to set up a little bit of context here before we see the, the, the fairness and justice that is being referenced uh, from both a, an earthly point of view and God's point of view. 
So Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I'll start in verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. I'm going to pause there for just a second. I've learned a lot since being just a member of this congregation and over the last several years really trying to engage in multiple studies. And one thing that I've learned is that a denarius is approximately that of what an average day's work was at the time uh, that this was being uh, communicated and said. Um, And so I I say that as context because notice it wasn't that that these workers at the beginning of the day were being shortchanged, that they were being uh, offered something that was inferior to what was expected of the time. Uh, It was the average day's work, uh, the compensation at least, that was uh, equivalent to what workers of that time should expect. Okay. So, moving forward, he said, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go in the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So that's the context. Now let's, let's get into the dilemma uh, that, that starts to emerge as uh, the evening comes to an end. Uh, it says, So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came and who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a, a denarii. Uh, for when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise each received a denarii. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the heat, uh, burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? I want to draw your attention to a couple of places here uh, to help us understand justice and fairness from God's point of view, uh, specifically man's reaction here. And I, I, want to, I want to go a step further and say, I think this is a, a pretty common reaction today, uh, not even um, you know, 2,000 years ago, but I think if, if somebody were to come in today um, and said, uh, you know, you've got a 10-hour shift here at McDonald's, um, and yet somebody comes in at the end of that shift and you get the same compensation, I suspect people would be frustrated. I think it's an incredibly timely and relevant uh, uh, analogy and parable here that Jesus offers us. And you can see man's point of view and man's reaction is complaining. Well, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. And, and I, this one hits really close to home as well uh, as a, a college professor I get asked regularly uh, about, about this time of year, actually, um, for extra credit. Dr. Goldman, can we have a little extra credit? Just, just give me one chance, one chance to make up that one assignment. And I tell them, okay, if you were to find out that somebody else had a chance to make up an assignment and I didn't give it to you, what would your reaction be? Oh, I'd be furious. I'd be so mad. I say, but I didn't change the expectations of the course for you. We agreed these were the assignments, these were the, how I would grade you. Um, and yet that standard, when it begins to be in question by others around us, we start to feel feelings of unfairness. 
and I think that's a really important and something, a lesson that I want us to, to come back to in just a moment, um, because I think that will help us in a lot of the major challenges that we deal with every day uh, as Christians about fairness and justice uh, in our lives. But I'll, con- I'll contrast that uh, with what uh, the godly point of view is. Uh, here, concluding that, that parable uh, in verse 14, "...take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen." I draw your attention here to what God's contrast is. And I want to give you another analogy uh, to help understand this. When when referencing God's point of view and God's justice, I see that as a a straight line, a a line directly to heaven. He's talking about, here's how I view this path, and here's what you need to know if you're going to follow me, and you're going to, to come spend an eternity with me. And then man comes along and says, but, and we start to diverge, and we start to create little pathways off of that. Uh, and, and I think this is one of those examples, because he's saying very clearly here, it's mine to give, and, and I wish to give the same to the last one as I do the first. And is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? And I think it's really important that we see a couple of takeaways from this. Number one, it's our own self-interest as human beings. It is our own self-interest that hinders and limits how we define fairness. And we do so by contrasting that with what others receive. I imagine if I asked each and every person to raise their hand in this room, how many times have a comment about fairness come out of your mouth that it was due to what you saw others having happened, right? Something that they had, a promotion that they received, or an opportunity that they were given that you weren't. And that's how we frame fairness in our minds. And, and I think that's in part uh, common among human beings, and, and I'll be the first to say I've done that myself. I've fallen short of that myself, or my own interest has limited me. But one of the things that we see throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, this is something that has been uh, with us as long as humans have been around. The psalmist struggles with this a lot. Why do great things happen to bad people? Why do, bad, why do bad things happen to good people? Right, We're comparing all the time, contrasting all the time. Uh, but I, I'll draw your attention to Job. I think uh, it's summarized well here in Job 21. Uh, Job 21, verses 7 and 8, says, Why do the, the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Job's saying here, uh, basically, the wicked just sometimes get away with everything, and that doesn't seem fair. Right? That doesn't seem right, that they're becoming powerful, they're becoming rich, they're getting to see uh, descendants of theirs also take on this, this power and this, this uh, money. Uh, it just Where does it end uh, in, in Job's uh, description here? Um, and it's not something that's limited to the Old Testament, even the, the apostles themselves. And it's one that I oftentimes, uh, this is where I can relate the most to apostles, I think, in, in many ways, is when I see some of the, the imperfections that they have. Uh, and sometimes it was quite clear in their arguments with each other about this very concept. Uh, in Luke 22, verse 24, for instance, uh, it's uh, right there uh, in the, the Lord's final hours. Uh, you have, at that very moment, a moment where you think all eyes are on Jesus. Apostles are, are just soaking in every second they can with them. 
but the contrary. They're actually arguing among themselves, right? Who's going to be the best among us? Who's, well, how's that fair? If, if I've led more sermons, then uh, shouldn't I be the, the person at the right hand of God, and, and you'll be somewhere down the line? You can imagine the details of these conversations and the frustration that Jesus is having in that moment, thinking, you all are just missing the boat here, right? There's, there's a bigger picture, and you're not seeing it. Uh, and there's a bigger picture to fairness and justice uh, that we need to be aware of as well. Which brings me to my third takeaway. God's standards for fairness and justice, as we see here in both the, the previous two parables and the last that we'll get into in a moment, uh, are universal. They're not defined by individual. I, I've Since writing this particular slide or putting these words together, uh, I've thought about how terrible would it be if it was the opposite, if God's standards weren't universal, if he did have favorites, if there was a leaderboard right up here that said, oh, you know, Jason's leading the, ser- or leading the congregation this year in sermons, so he's number one on the list to get to heaven. The, the outcomes of that, the challenges that that would pose to our congregation and to, the, to Christians everywhere, it's not the case. God says, my love's for everyone, and my standards are for everyone. I don't play favorites. I have no partialities, but my justice, his justice, is patient and firm. Again, we see that in Isaiah uh, chapter 30, verse 18, uh, a verse that I'm in particularly fond of. Uh, says, that the, therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. I think I could stop right there and, and, and make the point clear tonight. But the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And we again see this uh, in Isaiah uh, 61 as well, uh, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make them an everlasting covenant. Which leads us to our last point as well. Sometimes I think fairness and justice are misconstrued and, and our, we, we, our minds wander on this because we think, going back to Job and the psalmist and so many other places, the wicked just seem to get away with everything. And God's saying, rest assured, that's not the case. That's not the case. I, they, they make their covenant as well. And we see that here uh, in the final parable of the unforgiving servant. So again, if you're, you're flipping back and forth with me, I apologize, but this will be our last time jumping back now to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we'll take a look at one final parable that I think illustrates these takeaways and one additional one as well. And we'll begin in verse 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Let's pause right there. This is a reverse order, but it's the exact same contrasting. Now, first, we're seeing God's view of justice, God's view of fairness. And he is forgiving a a debtor who could not pay, uh, and yet he's doing so because he understands that he is the one and the only one who can grant forgiveness. And thus it is entirely fair for him to do so uh, under the the, um, laws of of him, of God. Um, But I draw your attention to the contrast here of man's view 
Uh, and it says then in verse 28, But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him in prison till he should pay his debt. Man, humans struggle with forgiveness. And when we think about the contrast here, God so clearly and overwhelmingly forgave a man who had no realistic chance of paying that debt off. And yet man, human here in this situation, turned around and refused to forgive a much smaller offense, a much smaller debt that one was owed. And so contrasting these two views of justice and fairness, that doesn't quite seem fair to those of us who read this afterwards. I draw your attention to the final few verses of this parable, uh, beginning in uh, verse 31. It says, So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were grieved. They were very grieved, and came and told their master all that he had all that had been done. Then his master, after called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, to each of you, from his heart, who does not forgive his brother his trespasses. It leads there directly into our fourth takeaway. And that is that God expects us to understand his justice and do his will on earth. Notice, we cannot enforce God's justice. We read about quite often in Scripture that vengeance is His, and He alone will serve it. We are not asked, nor should we expect, to deliver God's justice on earth, but we're expected to understand it, and we're expected to do His will. And we saw that in the last parable there, the consequences for not doing so. I think it's explained even more clearly in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We also see that, that same idea uh, and, and ideas that we've been talking about now uh, for a little while in Luke 12. Luke 12, uh, as we begin to conclude this, says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. God's saying justice is coming. Pure, true, full justice that only He is capable of delivering is coming. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know where, where or how that's going to happen, but we know it's coming. And we know that, that we are a part of that, that kingdom, that saved kingdom, uh, by doing His will and by or obeying Him uh, in the gospel. So tonight we looked at three parables. And these are three parables that I know we've heard or many of us have read and, and thought about and studied before. But I hope tonight gave you a slightly different layer to them. It's something I've always enjoyed about the parables is that there's so many ways of thinking about them and so many ways that they relate to our lives. Uh, and certainly they have uh, something to teach us about fairness and justice in today's world as well. I, uh, I certainly um, would uh, be remiss of not telling you the ending of, of my lack of fair, uh, a lack of fair situation that, that I was experiencing. 
Um, and I will tell you, the story does not end like you think it does. <laughs> I wish it did. I wish it ended with, Zach got a ticket and uh, he learned his lesson. Police officer, after I said to him, well, that's not fair, looked me in the eye and said, why don't you step out of the car, please? And uh, as a 16-year-old, being asked to step out of your car by a, an Indiana State police officer is a pretty terrifying thing, especially when your high school girlfriend is sitting there in the, the passenger seat with you. He said, why don't she step out as well? Great. And uh, so then he escorts us to the back of the police car. And my mind is, is running at 1,000 miles an hour at this point. He says, have a seat in there. So we have a seat, and then he, he proceeds to let us wait in there for what felt like a lifetime. It was probably only about 45 seconds, uh, but he had to get something or paperwork, and so we're sitting in the backseat of this police car, and it's still to this day, and at least I'm proud of this part, the only time I've ever been in a police car uh, since that time. Um, but we sat in that police car, and he came in and, and sat down, and he said, all right, there's uh, really one of two ways that this is going to go. He said, I'm going to write you a ticket, and it's, it's a pretty big one. He said, the speed that you were going, I think it was about 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. And he said, and I saw what you were doing back at those stoplights, and I was just talking today, actually, to uh, uh, a member of our law enforcement. I said, is that right? Could they have actually done this? And I said, yeah, kind of. He said, it's a, like a misdemeanor. Uh, could have been, you know, we could, you know, suspend your license, laid all these possibilities out. He said, or, I said, okay, I'm listening. Uh, he said, or, I've got a phone here, you're going to pick up this phone and you're going to call your father and you're going to tell him exactly what you've been doing in, in detail, how fast you were going, what you were doing on this road in his car. He said, and then after that, you're going to call her father. I said, I think I could do without a license for two months or so, that's fine, right? Uh, no. I, had, I was staring down the barrel of true accountability. Right, a true testimony, a true account of what I had have done. And I remember I called my dad, and it was painful, but he, it was painful for him too. And he just said, we're talking about this when you get home. Said, Thanks, Dad. Uh, made it at least a little bit better. Then I had to call her father. And I can still remember, and even just retelling the story here in front of you, my stomach kind of just turns thinking about that phone conversation. And I remember I said, sir... Um, I'm here with a police officer, and uh, it was as awkward and as painful as you could imagine, but that police officer made me tell in detail how fast we were going, how reckless I was being, uh, and, and he made me conclude with, with your daughter in the car. Um, and, and I remember that being as, um, as absolutely devastating as you think it might be to a 16-year-old. But that being said... And I, I don't know who that police officer was, never met him again, never saw him again. I owe him an incredible debt of gratitude because what it did from that moment on was planted a seed in, in terms of what true testimony, true accountability will look like. This was one man. This was a father of, of one uh, daughter. This was a human being. And as terrifying as that situation was, and make no mistake, it was terrifying, it's not like giving a testimony to the, the creator of all creators, the God of all gods, the, 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 the person who created each and every one of us and created the, the ground in which we stand on. We have that in front of us. That is coming. Scriptures teaches us that. And so if we have to give that account, I'd like to know personally that the scales are in my favor, that the scales have been tipped, because on one hand, those who are not in Christ 
The, the weight of sin has pulled that scale down so far. There's no hope of balance. There's no hope of bringing it back unless you are found in Christ. Christ offers hope. Christ offers a balance that we cannot tip ourselves. We cannot create an equal scale ourselves, but Christ can. Christ enables us to be forgiven of our sins, forgiven of our trespasses, and allows us that hope of heaven. And when we stand before the creator of all creators, I believe each and every one of us will will praise God for the fact that, that Jesus Christ came into our lives because that's absolutely necessary in that moment. If you're not a Christian here tonight, this is the time. This is the time to take on the ultimate balancer of scales, the ultimate person who can wash you, cleanse of your sins. If you are a Christian tonight and you have fallen short, if you have seen God's justice and you've taken that slight detour, tonight's the night to to reconcile that, to to put that back on the track uh, that he has asked us to be on. If you have needs of any kind, please let it be known as we stand and sing the song of invitation.